Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Paper podcast. I'm Becca Freeman. And I'm Grace Atwood. And today we have another Grace on the podcast. We are interviewing someone I have been a little bit obsessed with for a long time, Grace Bonney, who is the founder of Design Sponge and has a new book. Yeah, we're talking to her in advance of the launch of her new book, which is called Collective Wisdom and is a series of interviews with over 100 women who are over 50 about their life and careers and all that good stuff. So... I'm so excited to talk to her, but before we get into the episode, this episode is sponsored by Night, the makers of our all-time favorite pillow. So we'll tell you more about them later in the episode, but Night is retiring our favorite face mask. And this would be sad news, except they're now 50% off, and you can use our code NIGHTBOP to get an extra 20% off at discovernight.com. Yes. So Becca, before we get into the interview, what is your high from the week? My high is definitely my trip to Boston. So I went up to Boston for my friend Kyle's birthday is actually this coming weekend, but he had his birthday festivities last weekend. And it was so fun. And I will tell you that I'm usually a little bit of a Grinch for Halloween type things. Halloween is not my my preferred holiday, and we did a lot of Halloween stuff. I had so much fun. It looked so fun. As someone who, like, Halloween's my favorite holiday, so it looked very fun. We had a ton of fun. We we stayed at a casino in Boston. They opened an Encore casino there. It's literally like <laughs> Vegas. It was very weird to be there. Downtown Boston or outside it's in of Everett, Boston? Everett, so it's adjacent okay, okay. to Boston. Okay. I was just like picturing like the Copley Square Casino. No, but it was huge. It felt like being in a Vegas casino. So we stayed at the casino. We went wine tasting slash apple picking one day. I do not recommend central Massachusetts wine, but the, it was beautiful. It was fun. We went to a drag show because my friend Kyle, whose birthday it is, is an amateur drag queen. And so he did him and a couple of our other guy friends did Madonna drag and we went to a drag show. If you live in Boston or you're going to Boston, Jacques Cabaret is an incredible drag club. It is so fun. And then on Sunday, we went up to Salem, which I've been to Salem, but I've never done Halloween things or witchy things in Salem. And well, it was very crowded, but it was very fun. I was expecting to be the Grinch about it because I am not a Halloween person and I had a blast. I would love to do that as an adult. I went when I was much younger. It's like it's, I would really like to do that. It looks fun. So also it was very crowded. So we had tickets for a, a haunted boat cruise. You know, we had a, a lunch reservation, but we didn't get to do anything unplanned. And there's a museum there and they had some exhibits about like revisiting the witch trials through a modern lens. And I'm like, I would love to go see that exhibit. So I think yeah. it would be a very fun place to go off season where it was a little less crowded and to be able to do some of those things. And I think there's also a museum, like a witch Witch Trial History Museum there. That sounds really cool. Yeah. What about you? What's your high? So I had one super, super fun night in New York. We went up there just for a night for my friend's 40th. And we stayed at the Carlisle, which was so fun and fancy. We ha- we met Alex and had drinks with her at Bemelman's beforehand. And then our friend's birthday was at Legacy Records. And it was just like a very fun New York night. So that was amazing. And then also, it's my parents' 41st anniversary was on Monday. So when we got back to Charleston, we went to the Peninsula Grill and we surprised my mom. So like my dad was very cute. After my 40th birthday, he I think he was like feeling some like – because they couldn't do anything big for their 40th anniversary last year because of lockdown. So um, 
he was like, I want to plan something really special for your mom. And like he brought her in and like they met at the bar and had champagne and like a little snack. And then we all snuck in, we meaning my boyfriend and I and my sister and her husband all snuck in to the restaurant and like sat sat down at this table. And then she, it was so cute. She walked like right by me, made eye contact, did not recognize me. She was, like, so, so surprised. I mean, it's silly because, like, we all live there. Like, what I really would have loved is if my younger sister would have come, but she has two young unvaccinated boys and just didn't feel comfortable making the trip. And she also works as a college professor, so it, and her big lecture was the next day, so she was like, there's no way I can come. But um, it was a fun surprise and, like, a great dinner. My dad actually, like, brought all his own wines from, like, his collection to the restaurant, which I was like, Dad, I don't know how you're going to do that. And he's like, I got I got this. And it worked. Like, the restaurant will allow people to come in and bring their own wines if they want to. So That's that was so very cool. fun. I was wondering yeah, why was, you did 41 and why that was, like, such a big deal. It was kind of, like, a fun way to celebrate since we couldn't do 40. Yeah. Yeah. What about on the low side? No real lows to report. I am just so sore. <laughs> I've been doing my training workouts. I, I see my trainer twice a week, and then I get homework, and I do two homework workouts a week, and then I have to walk. Like I sound like I'm like 85. It's been going really well. Today, Like every muscle in my abs and my sides is just like killing, which is great because I want to like build up that core strength again. But I'm just very sore. I also like can't get caught up on work. Like I feel like some it can be really hard with the long distance relationship and traveling and then trying to cram all my work into three or four days um, between like, you know, recording our podcast and I usually have at least two shoots a week and then recording Instagram stories. These are all not super hard things, but it can be hard to manage your time. I've just been feeling a crunch on my time. Yeah. Yeah. But other than that, everything is great. <laughs> um, what, what, what's your low? I'm just continuing to be a bummer. I'm in a, I'm in a low, I'm in a low month, low phase of things. So I, one of my work clients, my consulting clients that I've been working with for three years is ending our contract, which is, you know, it's totally fine. It started off as a six month contract and has been three years and it's totally within their, within their rights to do so. And, you know, there's no hard feelings there, but I am, I'm spiraling a little. I just, so having this one client as something I can depend on for the past three years has given me a lot of stability with my consulting work because it means that, you know, if I have this client that I can depend on plus, you know, any other client, like I'm fine for money versus most of my other um, clients in my consulting work are are usually shorter projects, like usually around six months. So, you know, it's a little bit more of a revolving door. And so I'm like sad. I'm annoyed because I, I don't think it's like really a secret that like I don't really want to be doing consulting work anymore. Like I would prefer that my creative work was my whole career. And so losing the stability now means that I have to do more biz dev. And like, it's not that I can't replace them. Like I'm not worried about money. I'm not worried about like my ability to continue in in this work. I'm just I'm like, "Ugh, it's going to be harder." And that's yeah, annoying. Yeah, and you to have me. to go out and network and like sell yourself and get a new client. Yeah, and I'm going to have to more consistently do it because, you know, I'll have to continue to replace clients more frequent with more frequency than I had been. So, I'm annoyed and you know, just in addition to what I was talking to last week about feeling a lot of uncertainty 
on what's next for rom-com pods, I, I'm just like, oh, another work thing. So I'm just like not feeling great professionally right now. I hear that. Hey, on a brighter note, before we recorded, I listened to the first two episodes of The Secret Project. What did you think? And I wanted to tell you, I love it. I think it's also, it's just so professional. Like, plot aside, I was just impressed by like the logistics. I don't know what the word is. Like the (laughs) the engineering quality, the sound. You've talked a lot about the sound effects and things, and it's really fucking good. Oh, I'm so glad you like it. Yeah. I will it's, give I mean, a, a there little. There are parts that are a little crass for me. I will tell you, like there was a couple moments where I was like, "Shit, this is like you can't have this on." Like because I just like I live alone, so I listened. I was I had it really loud because I was folding laundry in the other room. Oh God! <laughs> I was like, "Oh my God!" There is can I say like a slapping noise? There, there are sex scenes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um. But the quality is incredible. I don't know where the plot is going. Well, I kind of know where it's going. It's so good. You should be so proud. I'm excited. As a little spoiler, I feel like this is more (laughs) in your genre than our usual content. So I'm glad that you like it. That means a lot. And I'm excited about it. I'm, you know, I can't wait for this to come out because I think hopefully it'll open up a lot of opportunities. So, you know, I I also feel a little um, defeatist or dramatic because I'm, I know that all of this will end up working out, but I'm annoyed right now. I feel like nothing's going my way, I guess. Yeah, I hear that. So that's how, that's my low. That's how I'm feeling. Yeah. It'll, it'll turn around. I'm confident, but I hear that and I'm sorry. Thank you. But before we get into this interview, let's take a quick sponsor break. So today's episode is sponsored by ZocDoc. So a few months back, I went on a post-quarantine doctor spree, and I caught up with all the doctor's appointments that I skipped during the depths of quarantine. And I had to see my primary care doc, my gynecologist, and dermatologist. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that the task of booking these appointments languished on my to-do list for literal months. And it was especially daunting because I had to find all new doctors because a lot of my old doctors either didn't take my insurance or were too far away from my current apartment. And I moved here almost three years ago, so that will tell you how long it has been since I saw the dermatologist. But yeah, I thought this task was going to be such a huge pain, and I avoided it while also stressing about it for months. And it turns out it took me all of five minutes to find new doctors and book an appointment right online with ZocDoc. So every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, and I am one of them. It is my go-to whenever I need to see a doctor. ZocDoc just makes healthcare so easy. Just download the free ZocDoc app, the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. I just plugged in my zip code, my insurance information, and any preferences. Like, for example, I definitely wanted a female gynecologist, and voila, they just give you a list of providers in your area, and you can read verified reviews and book an appointment all online without ever having to wait on hold with a receptionist ever again. So whether you need a primary care physician, dentist, dermatologist, psychiatrist, eye doctor, or other specialist, ZocDoc has you covered. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com BOP and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot B-O-P. Into the interview. 
Grace Bonney is the mastermind behind Design Sponge, which is one of the first original blogs and a site that at one point reached 2 million people daily, turned into a best-selling book, and is now archived in the Library of Congress, which I think is so cool. A few years ago, she published The Ode to Female Entrepreneurs within the Company of Women, and this month, her new book, Collective Wisdom, Lessons, Inspiration, and Advice from Women Over 50. So today we're going to talk about her new book, a little bit of design sponge stuff. It's just so great to have you here, Grace. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. We're super excited to talk to you. Wait, have you two met before from the blogging world or no? I don't think so. I don't so. think so. Mm-mm. Yeah. I was like an old school fan and I said this to Grace earlier, but my sister met her, I think at one of mm-hmm. your workshops, Grace. Yeah. And um, you featured her textile line like in the early, early days before she had any customers. And like you were really instrumental in her career and getting the word out about her business. So I'm- She's super talented. I'm, I oh. was very lucky to have known her in those early stages. I remember seeing her work, I think at the Textile Arts Center in Brooklyn and- It's really, really incredible to see what she's built. Yeah, it is. I'm so proud of her. So Grace, you've had such an incredible career path and we thought our listeners would really love learning more about your career and how you got your start. So could you briefly walk us through the highlights of your professional history from college until now? Sure. So I went to college to study originally journalism at NYU, and then I transferred to William & Mary, uh, where I'm from in Virginia, where I studied art history and printmaking. And I graduated with no idea of what to do with either of those things. So I ended up moving towards music because I had a radio show in college. So I worked in the music industry for a little bit, hated it, and took the first job I could find in design, which was actually design PR. And that let me like combine my love of writing with getting to know the industry. And when I was living in Brooklyn, this was 2003, I believe, I was living in Greenpoint, which I I lived in most of the time I lived in Brooklyn. And I was just walking around with a camera taking pictures of stuff that was happening in garage studios and things that kids were making at Pratt. And I just decided to start writing about them online because I feel like nobody was talking about that at the time. Like it was not considered valuable to care what was happening in the DIY world, what was happening with design students, like that was just kind of considered beneath mainstream design media. So I really wanted to celebrate that and then use that blog as a way to get a job at a magazine. And Design Sponge kind of ended up becoming the magazine that I wanted to write for. And I did that for 15 years. And I guess over the course of that, wrote some books and a magazine and we did a newspaper and a biz ladies series where I like traveled across the country trying to provide like free information for women who wanted to start their own creative businesses. And it kind of was like a huge art project when I look back at it. And it was a really nice way to figure out how I felt most comfortable putting my voice out into the world. And then it turns out after 15 years, I kind of got tired of my own voice. <laughs> and so I wanted to take a break. Um, and now I'm in grad school studying to become a therapist and I want to do more listening than talking. So that's kind of where I am these days. That's so neat. Like I, I didn't realize that you started it that early in your career, but we want to talk obviously about your new book. So I'm really curious because this is something that isn't really talked about. And at least I haven't seen very many books, you know, featuring women over 50. What made you want to write it? You know, it's it's really sad. There are not a lot of really great books about women over 50 or over 40 or anyone who, you know, there's that 
sort of weird tipping point where media has determined that women start to become like irrelevant or something, which could not be further from the truth. And there are there's some wonderful books. There's a book called Rowing North. Um, Lisa Congdon did an incredible book about uh, women who were older who were artists and creative people and explorers and adventurers. And those books are wonderful. And when it came to the types of books that I like to do, which gather, you know, a mix of personal and professional stories, I really wanted to do something that felt like a coffee table book, but also really leaned into like the uncomfortable parts of what it is to get older, but not the expected parts. I didn't want to talk about appearance or gray hair or any of that stuff. Like to me, that gets discussed ad nauseum um, in like the beauty world. And I really wanted to talk about what people get wrong about aging. And so I reached out to a group of women, I think about 100 in total, all across the country between the ages of 45, actually, and 106 to talk about what they've learned, what they're excited to learn next, some advice they could share with other people. And then I also really wanted to celebrate intergenerational friendships and how important those are. So about a third of the book are these really incredible collections of stories that are kind of joint interviews between women who either know each other from a sorority or they're part of the same family or, you know, they met each other in the neighborhood and they've got this really special friendship. And my hope is that People will be inspired by the individual profiles, but will be even more inspired to maybe reach out and make a friend who is 20, 30, 50 years older than them because those connections are incredibly important. I think that's so cool. I I, I feel like we spend so much time reading about, you know, 40 under 40 lists or 30 under 30 lists. And so to have, you know, a space devoted to women over 50 is so interesting. Like, you know, I think we always, when we have people on our podcast who have had many different careers in their life, they're always the most interesting people versus somebody who's, you know, 29 and has done one thing and, you know, doesn't have that, that breadth of experience. Yeah. And and young people can have incredibly important things to share. And that's why I wanted to kind of have that little tinge of intergenerational connection there. But I think so often we we think of older women in particular as only available to share information in one direction. Like they can be a font of wisdom, but they've they've become these like static, you know, like sage-like beings. And yes, there there is wisdom there, of course. They've been able to live longer, more complicated lives than those of us usually who are in our 20s and 30s. But they're not like a stop point. Like they have interests, they have vitality, they have passions, they're curious about life. And I really wanted to showcase that in a big way because I think the narrative just gets so stoic in this way that is really unfair to women and that we don't do to men. We really celebrate like how much men are doing when they are in their 50s and 60s and there's kind of that silver fox thing versus like we all turn into boring crones and, you know. I love a good crone story, though, to be, to be <laughs> honest. But, but you know, that's that's the narrative I'd really like to to counter. I also love that your book features conversations with over 100 women from every corner of the country and way of life, and that 70% of them are either women of color, living with disability, or LGBTQ+. And so how did you find all of these women? Were these all women that you were familiar with, or did you put a call out? Like, how did you choose who were your, who you were going to feature? It's interesting. So most of my books, like within the company of women, I knew exactly who I wanted in that book pretty immediately and reached out to everybody within two weeks and nailed down the whole thing immediately. 
this was very different because I don't have a huge collection of women over 50 in my life. I have a few and that's it. And then I really wanted to ensure, of course, that I wasn't only speaking to the people who I connect with or who would be a part of my immediate community. So I always sit down and the biggest lesson I learned from in the company of women was that I needed to do a better job of representing rural communities uh, and also native communities and reservations. And so that was kind of my initial thought was how do I respectfully enter these communities through an intermediate who could introduce me to people who would feel safe to talk to me about what this project was. So I spent 90% of my time just doing outreach on this project, um, which is the complete opposite of in the company of women, which was like five seconds of outreach and then all the work. And this was really taking time to introduce myself or in people's trust, explain things, let people be involved in the editing process. It was just, it was just a very different process. Um, but I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out. But I always try to think about, you know, who's being showcased? Am I representing as many different communities as possible, as many different perspectives from different communities? Because so often in collections, you'll see one woman of color or one disabled person or one queer person. And those communities are not monoliths. And so it's really important to include as many perspectives as possible. So I think about that. I think about what has their life experience been like? Is that a unique perspective that's not in the rest of the book? And then, you know, it's kind of a game of assembling things in a way um, and even in the order of the actual stories that kind of flows that hopefully keeps you interested and contextualizes maybe more well-known names with people who are not as well-known yet. So that's my favorite part of the process is like putting everything together like a big, beautiful quilt. I love that part. I was going to say it sounds kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, but I think a quilt is probably a better way to describe yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's I, I love the design phase of anything. It's It's just a really nice chance to sit back and see how everything came together because this book there was no way I could anticipate what the content would end up being. With Within the company, I had a good idea of like what people were going to say for the most part because I had been talking to women about business for so long. But this was, I have no idea what someone who is over 100 is going to say when they look back at their life or tell me what they want to do next. Like that's not something I could predict. So I had to really build the content or build the book around the content after it was all done, which was new for me. All right, let's take another quick ad break. So you might have heard in a previous episode, one of our absolute favorite face masks is being retired. So you have heard us rave and rave about the night pillow, and we also really love their 100% silk face masks. So with the Delta variant in circulation, we are both back to masking whenever we're indoors, and my night mask is one of the only ones that I constantly reach for because it feels like nothing. It's weightless. It's silky. It feels good against your skin. But, you know, the silver lining of masks being back is that Knight has marked down all of their remaining masks by 50% off. And then if you use our code NIGHTBOP, you can get an extra 20% off. Yes, that is such a huge savings that you can double dip with the discounts. And these masks are worth it. They're so comfortable to wear, which is so important, especially when you have to wear a mask for a long time, like if you're going on a flight and you have to wear it at the airport and on the plane. I am always so thankful I have my night silk mask whenever I'm traveling. They just feel so much better than cloth masks. They don't get like sweaty. Um, I almost, I, I truly don't really realize I'm wearing one. And 
My favorite part is that because night masks are made with 100% mulberry silk, they're not going to absorb moisture the way that cotton does. And so they keep your skin hydrated, which is really an added bonus because especially when I'm flying, my skin can get like really, really, really dry and parched. Um, I mean, the other thing is maskne. And um, I mean, maskne is just the worst. But the mulberry silk is naturally hypoallergenic, which means that your skin is going to stay clear when you're wearing your night mask. And you don't just need to take our word for it, because you know who else loves night masks? Pretty much every celebrity. I'm not kidding. Really, every celebrity you can think of has been spotted wearing a night mask. Nina Dobrev, Gigi Hadid, Adele, Jessica Alba, Haley Bieber, Priyanka Chopra, the list goes on. Seriously, it is the mask that Hollywood chooses. And it comes in six beautiful colors, black, blush, pink, gunmetal, navy, emerald, and champagne. And I know because I just bought a couple of new ones that they're starting to sell out. So go on their website ASAP to make sure that you can get the color that you want. The silk triangle and the silk masks are all 50% off. Go to discovernight.com today and shop all of Knight's masks and max accessories. And of course, remember to use Knight BOP for the additional 20% off. And I mean, while you're there, if you feel like it, grab a pillow too. You're, you're going to love the pillow. It's my favorite thing in the world. Back to the episode. Was there any one um, conversation that stood out to you in particular or conversations? Yeah, so many. But um, I, I go back and forth between three that really kind of stuck out to me. But the one I'm thinking of today um, was an incredible woman who is an Iranian activist named Mab. Um, her full name is Mabupa, but she goes by Mab, and she is really well known for being an incredible cook here in New York, but has this very long life as an incredible activist in her home country where she can no longer revisit safely. And now she lives here in the U.S., and she produces content with kind of a feminist lens uh, from the Middle Eastern community. And she now lives in Los Angeles with her daughter, and she has lived so many different lives. And we were talking about that during the interview and this like endless curiosity she has for life and different cultures. And I was saying, how do you kind of write this in your head with all the different versions of yourself that you've been? And she said she likes to think about herself as like sitting around a table with all of the different versions of herself over over the time just to say, you know, what would they all think of me? And to constantly be in communication with them to kind of recognize all those different eras of yourself as still being a part of the current you. Like you don't shed them off. You don't look back and be embarrassed of them. It's just like, yeah, those are the, that's, that's you doing the best you could with the information you had at that time. And that visual of like sitting down with all the different versions of yourself has been quite helpful to me, um, especially in this kind of new stage in my life as I'm navigating a healthy dose of imposter syndrome, kind of entering a new field. And I'm trying to remember like, you know, if, 13-year-old Grace, who was a f- terrified to, like, raise her hand in class, would could see me now, like, very comfortably taking on leadership roles. Like, that's, that's a nice thing to sit back and remember. So that visualization of all the different versions of yourself at a table really supporting you as who you are today really stuck with me. Well, wait, you said you bounced between three, and now I'm so curious about which – which conversations the other two yeah. were that you alluded yeah. to? One was um, a mother and daughter, Abir and Huda, who are a part of the Palestinian diaspora, and they live in Chicago. And that conversation, it was very meaningful for me personally because it was a really intimate conversation. Um, I really appreciated the trust that they gave me in that conversation. Um, 
And we touched on the idea of therapy, which was kind of, I was on this cusp of, am I going to apply to grad school to become a therapist? And it was that conversation that actually made me realize, like, I wanted to do that. We talked a lot about mental health and some of the stigma associated with it. And so that really stayed with me. And then Betty Reed Soskin, who is just everyone's favorite national park ranger. She is the oldest national park ranger in the United States. And she works at the Rosie the Riveter Monument in San Francisco. And She's an incredible human being. I mean, talk about somebody who has lived so many different lives. And when I asked her what her favorite memory was, she um, talked about getting to sing on stage with a symphony, I believe, in Berkeley. And her daughter was was there for the interview. And she looked at her and she was like, Mom, you got to meet President Obama. Like, how is that not your your favorite memory? Like, he, you know, honored you. And she was like, oh, that, yeah, that was, that was nice. Can you that imagine? But, like, <laughs> I got to sing. Can you imagine meeting yeah, Obama being like... A distant second memory. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, those are the moments that I was most grateful for because I I have experienced, you know, some deep moments of like loss and trauma in my life. And I think those become more common as you get older. And I think once you kind of gather those moments, the things that stand out are the moments that really touch like on who you are. And as I'm sure as wonderful as it is to meet President Obama. I, I get why singing on a stage in the place where you grew up in a, in a place you grew up admiring would be what actually stuck with you if that was what was closest to your heart. So I don't know. I think what this book gave to me was the gift of perspective. And I really hope that brings the same thing to people reading. Now, did you go into this with a personal goal in terms of like figuring out what's next for you or, or you know, I don't know. What was your goal with writing this book? Hmm. No goals about what comes next. I knew that this would probably be the last okay. book I would write for a while. Um, I mean, never say never, but I, I didn't have another idea in mind, and I knew I wanted to approach therapy as a next chapter. So my goal was simply to combine the best possible collaboration of stories that I could and do that respectfully. And the older I've gotten and the more books I do, the more I realize how many how many ways the publishing process is not set up to respect the people who create, who are the content of a book. And especially if you do work like I do, where it's about trusting other people and bringing their stories in, and then you're essentially profiting off of them. So I spent a lot of time trying to rethink the publishing model. And so 50% of the profits of this book in perpetuity will go to the women in the book. And my goal was really to rethink how we do publishing so that people who are gracious enough to share their lives with us also benefit in the process as much as the people who get to do these interviews and be the face of a project. So that was honestly all I was thinking about was how do I set up a financial system that could benefit these women, but that doesn't put me in debt. And I was able to produce it without losing money and then have a little bit left over to divide the rest of the advance among all of the women up front too. So that was super important to me. That's so interesting. I've I've I love that. never thought about that and, and the the monetary system of, you know, who benefits from telling a story about another person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been really aware of that, especially within the company, because similarly to this book, Collective Wisdom, the vast majority of in the company of women was about women who are from traditionally marginalized communities. And I am a white, you know, I have an invisible disability, but like for the most part seem like a very white, cis, able-bodied person. And so I was the one who went on TV and promoted it and profited off of it initially. And so I think that was something I really had to grapple with and think about, like, is this fair? But every part of the system tells you, yes, you go be the one who's in front of everything. Like, the author is who is important. And 
you know, I'm grateful that I have a group of friends and the community of people online from Design Sponge who I still speak to on social media who hold me accountable to the things that I care about and have spoken about publicly. So that was a dialogue that began like a long time ago. It was like, how are you going to make sure every project you do is more equitable than the last? So I'd still change a lot of things about how I did this book, but I'm happy that this model was something we could pull off in time. Have other books done that? I haven't ever heard of anyone doing this. I'm sure they have. I don't I don't personally know of any. Yeah. I, I know of many books that are collaborative books where everybody is paid or gets, you know, an honorarium for participating, although I know way more that don't do that. Um, but I'm hoping that that will be something that happens more. Um, I think it's not something you see with a lot of white authors, to be honest. I think that people who are coming from communities where community is the focus, which is just not super common in um, the community of white writers because so much of us you know, we're like steeped in capitalism. I mean, we're all steeped in capitalism and white supremacy, but people who look like me benefit from those systems greatly. So I've never had anybody question how I make money until probably like seven or eight years ago. And someone kind of sat me down and was like, you should really think about how you pay people and how you make money off of other people's stories. And I'm really grateful for that. And Design Sponge trained me to be better about accepting criticism as a gift and to really take the time to sit with it and learn from it. And it has opened me up to really reconsider all of the structures I assumed were set up the way they should be, because sometimes they're not. All right, let's take one last quick sponsor break. This episode is also brought to you by Pros, the world's most personalized hair care. And I'm so happy that this podcast brought Pros into my life because it is 100% changed my hair for the better. I've been using their shampoo and conditioner for a year and a half now, and I am a complete convert. I just bought new bottles. I think it might be my fifth reorder. So Pros makes every customer a specialized blend of ingredients that's formulated for your specific hair care needs. You take an in-depth hair quiz, which asks you about your hair type, your styling routine, and also some less expected factors like your workout routine, your diet, and your zip code so that they can account for environmental factors. When I took the quiz originally, I told them that I wanted to have less frizz when I air dry, go longer between washes, and just improve my overall hair health. And a year and a half later, I am happy to tell you they delivered on all of these goals. My hair just all around looks better. And I have been so lazy about getting haircuts during quarantine. I I think right now I'm probably at about eight months. But at my last haircut, my hairdresser said my hair looked amazing, even though it had been so, so long. And it's all due to the pros. Also, we've got to talk about the scent. I get the Corsica scent and it smells so good. Even after all this time, every time I take a shower and I use it, I just have this feeling of like, ah, this is nice. Also, pros has a really cool review and refine feature, which means your custom formula gets better the longer you use it. So on every reorder, they ask you how they did relative to your goals, and then they make tweaks. And best of all, it's risk-free. If you're not 100% positive that pros is the best hair care you've ever had, they'll take the products back, no questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair care regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash B-O-P. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash B-O-P for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. Back to the episode. We want to talk a little bit about Design Sponge, too. Obviously, the focus of this interview is really on your book, and we also have a lot of personal questions, too, as we had your wife on the podcast maybe six months ago. But um, 
In 2019, you decided to close Design Sponge after 15 years. Well, it was still very successful and very much beloved. So I was just curious if you could share more about that decision and what it felt like to walk away from something so successful. So that decision was a complicated one. Uh, It was one that was many, many years in the making, to be honest. I think I realized probably six years before it closed that Design Sponge would only be as meaningful of a project to me if it continued to evolve the way that I was personally evolving. And as people were holding more me more accountable for the site being more equitable in terms of representation, who was a part of the team, you know, primarily in discussions of race and class, those were things that I wanted to include in the blog more. And we did, and I tried. It was not something that I think the audience was super game to talk about, and I, I really, really tried to push us in that direction, and I'm glad that we could kind of, I think, push a lot of those narratives forward and do our part to make sure that the home we had online looked a bit more equitable than it did when we started. But I think those discussions, they don't do well, and at least in that platform, they didn't work so well for us. So I started to figure out where can I take those discussions because that that's what matters most to me. So it's why I ended up doing In the Company of Women. It's why I launched a print magazine called Good Company and kept doing a podcast because I wanted to have these discussions about how class and identity and capitalism, like how all these things affect makers and how we build homes and how we feel safe in homes. I started to realize, like, I don't really think that the blog world is going in this direction. I think people, for the most part, just want to see, like, makeovers and home tours and before and afters. And I get that. That's the site I built in the beginning, so that's what people wanted. And as the ad industry started to shift a bit, and it was really clear that we were going to have to spend, like, 80% of our time on sponsored content, and that sponsored content would be highly controlled by brands— It just didn't feel right. And I knew at some point I was like, we're either going to have to look into the idea of venture capital money or taking out a loan, which I was like, I I have nothing to put up as collateral, so I don't think that's going to work out. I just realized I think this is probably the time I need to think about what's best for us. And that's hard when you have a team of people, some of whom's incomes depend on the site, you know, their health insurance depends on the site. So I started to talk one-on-one with the full-time employees for whom would be they would be most affected and gave everybody plenty of time and worked with them to help them find new jobs that felt right, um, to make sure that they were safe and supported in that process. And that happened behind the scenes before we ever announced it. And then when I announced it, I announced it six months ahead of time on purpose because I really wanted to to be able to like say goodbye with all of our friends. I think so often when websites close, it's like, announcement and then they're over and that happened like with um with rookie which i was a massive fan of and i was devastated when rookie closed not because i didn't understand why her letter tavi's letter explained so beautifully exactly why most of us wanted to get out of that industry at the moment but i was just brokenhearted that it immediately shuttered and so i wanted to take that time to like keep it a little bit more personal and let us kind of like revisit some of the people we wrote about in the beginning and spend time together as a team and give people enough space to like get the stories they wanted out there before we were closed and I would not have changed a single thing. I am so happy with the way we were able to close, and I felt every possible human emotion <laughs> during those six months. And then it felt really quiet really quickly. Um, I went on a solo trip to Alaska a couple months after we closed it just by myself in the fall when it's very cold and very empty. And I just sat with myself and was like, 
have I made a mistake? It would be really easy to just go back. But the financial system that underlies blogs is just not one that I really like connect with anymore personally. So I knew it was time to leave. And now that I've kind of watched all of our team go out into the world, I feel really proud of how we as a team really pushed each other to be better than we were before. And I've seen them bring that to other blogs, magazines, you know, online communities in a way that that means so much more to me than anything we could have done if we had gone back and started over. So I think in the end it's really complicated, but it took me probably two years of being out of it to realize like, yeah, that was the right thing to do. I probably should have done it like a year earlier, but I'm really proud of the way it opened and the way it closed. Like that, that means a lot to me. I think this is so admirable because I've just, I don't know, I'm in the blog world and I also have seen so many blogs sell or, you know, cash out and just like, you know, make a killing off it. But I think that the way that you handled it is, I don't know, I like was getting teary as you described it because it's just, it's it was really thoughtful and considerate and you could have just like sold it for like a, a whole pile of money, but you know, your name's attached to it and your integrity and all of that. So I just really wanted to tell you, I, I, um, I think I've said admire like 10 times, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I mean, and, and to be fair, like anybody who chooses to sell their blog, like that, I have no shade for anybody who chooses to do that. And I think, I think there is a misconception that people who sell blogs make like a ton of money and, we definitely had offers to sell or people who wanted us to sell design sponge to them earlier, including like some very, some large networky sites that are quite huge now. And I remember one of them sitting, they took, took us out to eat at Balthazar one time. And I was like, very impressed. It was very New York city. And I was like, fancy people in suits. And it was under the auspices of like, we just want to have a conversation. And it was a site that was very new at the time is now massive. And they were like, you know, we have a big offer for you. And they offered us a million dollars to buy a design sponge. And I would still oversee it. And I had all these questions. And I was like, oh, wait. Oh, you're talking about just like buying it outright. You're not talking about like building a team. It was like, we're just going to take you and pull you over here. And I was like, oh, no, thank you. I'm not interested. And this was like before the meal had come. And they just looked at me and they were like, what do you mean? And I was like, yeah, I'm not interested in that. And they just looked at me like I was bonkers. Yeah, I mean, a million dollars sounds like a lot of money. That's actually not a lot of money. <laughs> like, I would not be able to, like, pay out a team or do anything meaningful with that amount of money after taxes, after all of the stuff you'd have to go through that happens in an acquisition. And I think they thought I would just be super blinded by that number. And in reality, like, for me to totally close something down and to sell any ability to use those platforms in the future in a way that felt meaningful – I don't think there is an amount of money, frankly, that exists for me to do that. But I, I understand why other people do, and I think that's totally fair. It was just for me, you know, I, I literally can't think of an amount of money to do that because I just think sometimes you can't sell those those things. Like, the idea behind them matters more to me. Yeah. So it was a million dollars. It was like you had to then pay pay yourself and pay a team using that? I don't I don't know what they would have yeah. done. I don't I'm sure they would have taken me for a hot second. And most people I know who do those types of sales to larger networks end up getting kicked out after like a year if you're the founder. But I knew if I closed my site and had no ability to continue to employ the people who are already employed by it, I would want to give those people like huge buyouts. That would not be doable with the amount of writers I had at the time and that type of money, which sounds like a lot of money, but it's after taxes and all that stuff. It's just yeah. not. And I had concerns about the kind of ethical, I don't know, compass of that particular brand. And so I just knew immediately, like, oh, no, absolutely not. But that was a really important moment for me to realize, like, 
oh, for a lot of people, this is just a business. And that's all right. That's just not what it was for me. Like, it was never just a business. Like, there were many, many points where I could have made a lot more money. And I just thought, like, yeah, but then I'd have to do all these things that don't feel right to me. So there's a part of me that feels bad about the fact that I couldn't make my team more money because, you know, I think if they had written for a different blog, they probably all would have made more money than they did at Design Sponge. But I'm really happy that we all had the creative freedom we did for as long as we did. I think that's a very hard thing to build these days. And your blog also brought you your wife, Julia Tertian, who has been on <laughs> yes, our podcast. And she told us her side of your your origin story. But I would love to hear your side. Our meet cute. Julia loves to tell that story and tells it way better than I do. And very That's why we want to hear I your do. side. Um, but <laughs> You're like this yeah. creepy woman just sent me an email. Did, I mean, <laughs> No, I mean, no, not creepy at all. I mean, I knew who Julia was. I just didn't know Julia. Yeah, she had been interviewed on Design Sponge by Jenny Branch, who was one of our very longtime writers for a column we did where we just got to know somebody and like where they lived and worked. And I thought she was super cool, but I had just come out publicly and that's why she reached out to me. I wrote a very small sort of short and sweet coming out post on Design Sponge because I had come out privately a year before that to my friends and family, but felt like because there was the end of a marriage and that marriage was very much a part of the origin story of Design Sponge that it didn't feel respectful to just kind of like jump there really quickly. So I took some time and kind of like processed it. That was the first time I started therapy at that at that age at 30. And I just needed space to do that. So by the time I wrote that piece, I was like getting into the dating world, but it still felt very weird and scary. And I think I, I don't remember the time frame between when I wrote that and when she emailed me. I think it was pretty fast. And she emailed me and was like, hey, I don't know if you're seeing anybody. I don't know what's going on. But like, we have similar interests. Look, here's more about me on your website. Isn't that funny? (laughs) And I remember like turning my computer around to Amy, who I worked with. And I was like, Julia Tertian just asked me out. What do I do about this? This is wild. And I was like, obviously, I'm going. I just, I'm, this is so weird. And we started talking and it was very cliche. Like, you know, we talked, we sent like 400 emails to each other in the course of a week. By the time we went on our first date, I was like, oh yeah, we're getting married. And we did. We got married four months later. Um, (laughs) And, you know, now it's been a a very long time. It will be eight years. Yes, this fall. So, you know, I guess when you know, you know, but that's, we met essentially, I guess, because of the blog and I'm, but I'm very glad the blog is not, you know, all of our (laughs) story. Yeah. Wait, I have to ask this, and I think I know the answer because of what you said earlier when we asked you what you had for lunch. But um, do you cook for her? I do. Yeah, I do. Um, oh, okay. I do. I cooked <laughs> a lot uh, before I met Julia. Uh, I just don't enjoy cooking in the way that Julia does. It kind of stresses me out, not because I don't know what to do. I just like it feels like hassle. Julia, I'm the same way. <laughs> I actually is. I, I feel like I enjoy cooking for somebody else much more than I enjoy cooking for myself. Like you told us, I don't want to out you here on what you ate for lunch, but <laughs> oh, I don't care. I, I have I have no shame about the way I eat at all. You were like Julia's away, so like I had chicken nuggets and like a Snickers bar or something, and a Kit, oh, Kit Kat. I think oh, yes. you said. Um, but like, yeah, I, I don't Kit like Kat. to go through the trouble for myself, but I very much like enjoy cooking for other people. Like I think it's like acts of service is my love language. And it's also a way that I like to show love to other people. So like, I don't mind going through the effort of cooking for other people, but for myself, I'm like, oh God, that sounds terrible. It just feels like a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a whole thing. And I also like, I mean, I, I've had type one diabetes since I was 35. So I've had it for five years now. And 
it makes eating complicated. And, you know, that that's a whole other conversation. But I, I sometimes just don't want to think about it. And it's easier to get something that's, like, packaged. And so I don't have to, like, figure out complicated carb counts in my head. I can just go, there's the number on the side of the box. Cool, I'm done. And move on. And so if, like, this whole year Julia's been working at this organic vegetable farm in our town. And it's a very strenuous job. And she's gone the whole day, which is the first time we've been away from each other for that long since we've been together. So I'm very spoiled by having Julia around for whom cooking is a healing, regenerative act. And for me, I'm like, oh, this is exhausting. I need like an hour to recover from cooking. Um, so I've, Same. Yeah. So I very much benefited from Julia's love of cooking. And, I, and she very much expresses her love through food. So I've been very fortunate that that's been a huge part of my life. But I do love to cook. Breakfast is my jam. I cook breakfast for us on the weekends. I like a huge, elaborate breakfast with, like, pancakes and bacon and other things on the side. Like, I like all of the things that go with breakfast. So that's usually my domain, although not while she's been at the farm because she gets up way earlier than I do now. But, yeah, that's that's my thing, and I, I do make dinner and things like that. But she's the primary cook for sure. I would be so just out of line to not enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> So before we let you go, I want to hear more about what's next for you. So you've mentioned that you're in graduate school to become a therapist, and I want to hear more about that and and kind of how you see your next chapter unfolding. Sure. So I I mean, the last, I would say, five or six years of Design Sponge primarily for me revolved around interviews. So I was working on a magazine. I was working on – I mean, I did interviews for the website. I did the podcast. I really – threw myself into how much I enjoyed getting to talk to people one-on-one. I think I think people look at blogs that have large readerships as like, oh, you get to talk to this many people every day. And yes, I heard from that many people and interacted, but those are not like sit down, look in someone's eyes, have a meaningful conversation. Generally, it's feedback I need to process and improve on, or it might be like, you know, a positive thing. But for the most part, it's not like a really deep personal conversation. And when I got the chance to do these books and actually sit down with people and talk, I realized how much I really enjoyed doing that. And therapy had already been a really meaningful part of my life. And I realized therapy is essentially just listening and creating space for someone and making them, helping them feel safe with you. And the more I did that, I was like, I I really enjoy this. And I started making like, you know, vision boards, which is a whole thing I love to do. And I kept building them. And I was like, I'm I'm building a therapy world for myself. This is what I'm doing. And I was talking to my therapist about it. And she was like, finally, you've been dancing around this for years. Like, are you ready to just do this? And I was like, I'm going to be so bad at this. I have no skills. And she was like, no one has skills. You just have life experience. That's the most valuable thing you can bring in. And so I applied to an online program. I'm a couple semesters into that. I'm my representative for my class. (laughs) And it's been so fun. I feel like I am getting to live out the school experience I most definitely did not have as a younger person. And I'm not afraid to like speak up. I'm not afraid to have teachers not like me. Like I'm 40. I don't care about any of that stuff anymore. So it's a really interesting place to approach learning where you're not worried about like getting in trouble or having everybody like you. And the subject matter is fascinating. It applies to everything. I now look at like every interaction I ever had with anybody at Design Sponge through some sort of lens that I've learned in school now. And it's just awesome. It's also, I think, I just highly encourage anybody who has found themselves in a very niche niche place in their life to just try something completely different. It does not have to be career number two or three or four. 
but to just do something totally unrelated to what you do, to have people who know you as nothing related to what your career is, it is wildly liberating. And I love that the people I now spend my Mondays and Tuesdays and some weekend nights with doing work have no clue what my life was like before graduate school. And I love that. It's, it is so fun. And I feel like I'm actually getting to know myself, which is, which is really nice. I love that. You're really giving the hard sell on school. I mean, I feel like I just cared so much about the social aspect and I I put less effort into the school aspect because I was, you know, I was 18. So, you know, I'm like, it would be a totally different experience to go back to school at 35. And like, I would, I would be so into it. Like I would nerd out so hard. Yeah. Oh, I am. I'm like voluntarily spending hours building all of these like different projects and platforms. Oh, yeah. And I like built, I built a whole website for like our online cohorts because I was like, these don't exist. I know how to build websites. Yay. Side project. And <laughs> I was talking to my therapist and she was like, it seems like you've missed having a creative outlet. Like I'm glad that like school is providing this for you again. And it's, I will say it is genuinely rewarding as a human being to see that doing something totally new, the older you get, doesn't feel so new anymore. Like you recognize the skills you bring from other eras of your life and they show up in ways that you would not anticipate. And I'm just, I'm really happy I did this because I tried to talk myself out of it for a long time and I got really scared. I cried a lot and I talked to lots of people and I was like, I don't deserve this. I don't think I'm good enough to do this. Like, why do I even think I, I'm like some sort of on some ego trip thinking I could even do this? And I'm glad I just got over myself and applied and tried. And it has been so wonderful. And I don't think like school is the answer for everybody, but I do think learning is a really, really cool thing to do if you can do it in some way. And so whether it's like a pottery class or I got really into bird watching over the pandemic, like learning some new skill, like the older you get is really foundational. And that is a common thread in all of the stories of collective wisdom is people who constantly say like, the second you stop learning, that's the second that things start feeling, I don't know, like a, a little bit less vibrant. And so I'm so inspired by how many of those women like refuse to stop learning and being curious and doing new things. And I hope to just follow in their paths. You are making me so excited to read this book and to read all of these interviews. <laughs> I'll tell you, last night I sat down and I was like polishing – no, sorry, it's two nights ago because I sent Jackson the interview yesterday. But I was sitting down to like just polish off the interview questions and I was like, oh, I'll just spend like 20 minutes looking at the book. And then I was like, oh, like I need like five hours with this book. I need to spend like another like – it's so great, Grace. It's Thanks. so great. Thank you. That means a lot. I really enjoyed making it. Well, in the tradition of this podcast, you have earned your very own desperation minute to tell people where they can find you on the internet, where they can get the book, and how they can support anything you're doing or that you want to plug. Sure. So yeah, everything still exists at Design Sponge on Instagram. And there's the link there in my bio of all the places you can buy copies of the book throughout the world. Or if you want to support a local indie, there's a link for that to get signed copies. And that's still kind of where I am the most commonly is at the Design Sponge handle. And there's a, always a series of takeovers happening on that feed now, but I'm still the only person who runs it. So if you want to chat, just send me a DM. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was so fun. All right, let's get into some end matter. That was such a great interview. I'm going to just tell you, I didn't have an Instagram obsession, but I don't think I've said her Instagram here before. So Design Sponge is my Instagram obsession this week. 
it was a really interesting interview. It went in a lot of directions that I I wouldn't have expected or predicted based on, you know, what I knew about her before. I really enjoyed it. Um, do you have a, an Instagram obsession this week? I do. So I started following NaNoWriMo. So N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O. So that stands for National Novel Writing Month. And National Novel Writing Month is November. So this is something – I've heard a lot of authors talk about it. So specifically, I think Jasmine Guillory wrote The Wedding Date during NaNoWriMo. And then I, I'm i pretty sure Alexis Daria, who wrote um, You Had Me at Ola, wrote uh, her first book, not which is not You Had Me at Ola, but I don't remember the name of it, during NaNoWriMo. And so with all of my professional uncertainty, I, I'm trying – and I mean, take this with a grain of salt because the girl who was saying this has not written in like a week and a half. But I want to recommit to my goal of finishing the first draft of my book by the end of the year because I feel like it's something I can control. It's a creative project that I don't need permission for. So I ended up, Jasmine Guillory did a QA on her on her Instagram story a couple of weeks ago, all about NaNoWriMo. And I was like, okay, I'm getting into it. So I followed it. I think it's like a nonprofit, but they have all kinds of like writing tips and inspiration and like Q&As with authors and things like that. So I'm really enjoying following them. So even if you're not doing NaNoWriMo, I I highly recommend them as like a book content or like writing-centric Instagram. That's great. It sounds like a good way to like motivate too. Just like a constant reminder kind of. Yeah. I I have to go find out if they have a newsletter because I think that would be helpful too to have something in my inbox every morning. But I feel like I, if I commit to this on November 1st, this episode comes out on November 3rd, but in real time, it's October 28th. So I'm like, okay, if I commit to this starting November 1st and I write a thousand words on every weekday, I can still complete my goal. So I'm like, got to buckle down. I do well with a deadline. And even though this is like a self-imposed deadline, I feel like maybe, you know, as we get closer to the end of the year, I'll actually take it more seriously. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you, have a, do you have an obsession? I didn't really have one, and then I went to light my fall candle today, and I was like, I'm going to talk about my fall candle because I don't typically like pumpkin stuff. Like, I, I don't, don't like I don't, I don't like pumpkin spice lattes. I don't want pumpkin cake if we're having Thanksgiving dinner. There's all sorts of pumpkin stuff. Like, my favorite – I do have to tell you another obsession, which I just forgot about because I said I don't like pumpkin spice lattes, is the um, – I think it's called the Caramel Cookie um, Nespresso Coffee, which I don't really like sweet drinks, but that plus a little oat milk is like a delightful flavored coffee without being sugary because it's oh, just that the flavor good. and not the sweetener. It's really good. My candle is Pumpkin Chai by Nest, and it's making my home feel very cozy, especially because it is not cold here. Like, it's cold in my apartment. I'm wearing a sweater right now, but it's quite warm, like – I mean, it's been in the 60s and 70s, sometimes the 80s here. So it's nice to have like a cozy fall candle. Ooh, I just ordered some fall and winter candles this morning from Brooklyn Candle Studio. I really like – they have an apple cider candle for fall. And so I just ordered one of those. And then I ordered a Christmas tree candle from them too. They used to have them at Whole Foods, but they don't seem to anymore. Oh, interesting. I just ordered a Fraser Fair candle for holiday for when my – Pumpkin candle's gone. I feel like I'm getting into seasonal candle mode too. Yeah. I'm wearing my obsession right now. You can't really tell. It's pretty dark in here. So I I made my annual airy order of like loungewear and they have these waffle sweatshirts right now and they're pretty light. Like it's a 
It's a thin fall spring sweatshirt. It's not like a depth of winter sweatshirt. I am obsessed. I got two. The one I'm wearing right now is light blue. It's like sky blue. And then I got one that says Brooklyn on it. Grace, I like these so much. I I literally have to think in my head. I want to wear them every day, but I have so many Zoom meetings right now for um, one of my new clients that I'm, you know, like I'm on Zoom pretty daily at this point for meetings on camera. And I'm like, I have to track when I last wore the sweatshirts so that I like don't show up in the same thing every single day because that's what I want to be wearing all the time. Highly recommend if you are in the market for loungewear. I don't need new loungewear, but it looks really soft and cozy. Do they have sweatpants to match? Because I could really go for some waffle sweatpants. That's a good question. I do not know the answer to it, but I think it would be a good sweatpant weight if it was because they're not too, it's not too thick. You know what I did just get for loungewear? Like I already said my obsession, but Nottam, you know, I love their Mm -hmm. um, cashmere sets. They have a new set though. It's like really thick. It's linked on my blog somewhere if you search Nottam, but um, they have these pants and I think you would actually love them. You might get hot in them, but they're really long. Like I'm 5'8 and they're long on me. So I was like, I bet Becca would love these because like they hit the floor on me, which I kind of, I kind of love it because I'm like, being like lazy and loungy and there's something nice about having socks on and like the bottom of your pants like hits the floor. So it's not a complaint for me, but they're super long and cozy. Oh, I'll have to look into this because that is a problem for me. Length of sweatpants. Yeah. They're very long when they're not cuff. There's no cuff. It's just like straight. Ooh. So it's like the old juicy couture ones. It's almost like a stovepipe lounge pant. (laughs) Oh, interesting. That was not what I was picturing. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Not like the juicy ones. They're great. I highly recommend them. What about reading? Uh, I have been such a bad reader. You know, I was in three different cities in four days and between, you know, New York and then Savannah and then Charleston. Monday was my parents' um, anniversary dinner. Tuesday, I had dinner with a girlfriend. Last night, I had a work dinner. (laughs) So I have not been reading much. I am still reading Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. But my boyfriend and I decided to watch the movie when we got back from Savannah because he wanted to know about the Mercer house and more of Jim Williams' story. And then, um, so I kind of, now I know everything that happens from the Savannah trip and then also watching the movie. So I'm like, eh, but I do want to pick it back up because the book is, I've heard from multiple people, the book is so much better than the movie as it usually is. Um, And then I've been reading our, um, I'm only like, maybe 40 or 50 pages in, I've been reading our Bad on Paper book club pick, which is Ghosts by Dolly Alderton. Ooh, what do you think so far? It's really hard because it's, it, I'm so new to it. I like it. She's just met the guy who we know, who we know from the inside of the book jacket is going to ghost her. So I don't know. I'm not sure. But I think, I was thinking about like our conversation for the book and I was like, I think I'm going to like it. But even if I hate it, I feel like I'll have so much to say about ghosting and being ghosted. And I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. I, I do think it would be will be a really good book club pick. And this, which is contrary to what I feel about most rom-com type books, the second half of this book is such a page turner, is such a page turner. I could oh. not put it down in the second half. So it... It does pick up speed. Okay. Cool. Yeah. What are you reading? So I finished The X-Hex by Aaron Sterling, slash, which is a pen name for Rachel Hawkins, and I really enjoyed it. It was really cute. It was really fun. 
I did kind of have a reversal on my initial opinion that I shared last week. So I said that I thought it would be fun to read year-round, and I do think it kind of ended up netting out as a seasonal read for me. Like, it was cute and a little cheesy, and I really enjoyed it in October, but I don't know that it would be, like, a year-round witch book that I would be – that I would love. Although, you know what? Maybe if I was in the mood for something, like, really light and a little fluffy, because that's what it was. It ended up being a little fluffy, which – to be honest with you, sometimes like I'm in the mood for. And so I guess, yeah, that would be my only caveat, that it is a little on the fluffier side. So if you're in the mood for that, this would be a perfect book for for you. So finish that. And I've also been a bad reader. I bought I brought a book with me to Boston and I did not, I didn't crack it, like did not read a single page. But I decided last night that I'm ready to start Christmas reading. Oh, I, I only have, I think I only have like two Christmas books in my pile, but I have my eye on a lot of them too that came out this year. And so I'm reading a book called Always in December by Emily Stone. And this one already came out, so you can buy it too. And last night I was going to start reading it. Turned out I was a little too tipsy to read. I went out for martinis and french fries with my friend Mike and um, came home a little tipsy. And so I only read three pages. And I'm excited about this one because Ashley Spivey gave it a good review, which usually means I will like it. But Grace, in the first three pages, the main character mentions that her boyfriend gave her light-up reindeer earrings. And I just, I'm not sure that this is a person I can root for. And she seemed to be, like, that wasn't a ding on him. Like, she was appreciative. And I'm like, ooh, this might be, like, the Cape Cotter, like, the girl who I can't I still don't know what book it was where, like, somebody ordered a Cape Cotter as their drink of choice. And I was like, I've just lost respect for you as a character. So I'll I mean, back. this doesn't sound like a book I want to read. But we have different tastes, and that's what makes this podcast unique. Well, a lot of Christmas reading is pretty saccharine and schmaltzy. So yeah, it's not totally surprising. I'm going to keep reading it. I'm very excited. I have no plans tonight. My plan tonight is to – I'm going to make chili – I'm going to knit my sweater, and I'm going to read some of this book. So I'll have a better report for you next week when I'm more than three pages into it. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing about that. (laughs) Well, I feel like last year just so many people were asking me for Christmas book recs, so I feel obligated. It's a fun obligation to, like, start early so that I have recommendations. Yeah. So that's what we've got for you today. As Grace already said, our book club pick for November is Ghosts by Dolly Alderton, and it is kind of a rom-com. I don't know that I would classify it totally as a rom-com. It kind of bridges women's fiction, and it's about a woman named Nina who uh, lives in London and is in her early 30s, and it starts on kind of the beginning of her 32nd year, which she tells us is like a wild year in her life. She's kind of dipping back into the dating pool for the first time in a long time after breaking up after a very long relationship. She meets this great guy and uh, they go on a date and he's like, we're going to get married. Uh, And then he ghosts her. And so it's kind of all about modern dating and being single in your 30s and how, you know, kind of how that influences your friendships. And it's also about her uh, relationship with her mother and um, her father, who is sick with Alzheimer's. So there's a lot in this book. I think it's going to be such a good discussion book. So I'm really excited to reread it. I I honestly, I finished it over two weeks ago at this point, and I still haven't quite wrapped my head around what I think about it and the ending. And so I'm excited to, to read it again and to talk about it with all of you. 
Yeah, I, I, I am too. I, I mean, I'm just excited to tell ghosting stories because <laughs> I've been ghosted a lot in my life, but I've also done some ghosting. So it'll be cathartic. It'll be fun. Yeah. So that's what we've got for you. If you'd like more of us, you can follow us on Instagram at Bad on Paper Podcast, or you can join us in our Facebook group. Just search Bad on Paper on Facebook. And I'm on Instagram at Becca M. Freeman. And I also co-write, direct, and produce a series of fiction podcasts. The studio is called Romcom Pods, and our latest one is called Showmance. And I would love for you to check it out if you haven't already. Yes, and I'm on Instagram at Grace Atwood, and my blog is thestripe.com. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.